Uh, the first thing I want to do is uh, just connect this to our series. We're going through a new series now. Dave started it for us last week, Signed, Sealed, and Delivered is the title of the series. And it's a series that's coming to us out of the book of 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, and I pray that you do, please open them to 1 John chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 5 in chapter 1 down through chapter 2, verse 2. Now before we get to the passage, which I'll read in just a minute, I want to remind you of something that's very important in the verses that Dave covered last week, verses 3 and 4. Let's look at those verses together in chapter 1. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So what you have here in these three verses is John telling us the reason that he's writing. He's giving us his purpose for writing. First of all, he's writing on behalf of fellowship. And then second of all, joy. Just a word about these these two really important things. By the way, you know, I, I don't know how important fellowship and joy are to you. I hope they're very important. But somewhere you might get your lead from, in that is God himself. God says to John one day, in centuries past, penned these words. So obviously fellowship and joy are extremely important to God. So please, please consider these to be important as well. Fellowship and joy. There's two dimensions to fellowship. One is the vertical dimension. And actually that's where fellowship starts. This whole idea of relationship with God. God brings us into fellowship with Him. And then there's Horizontal fellowship, and that's the fellowship that happens between you and I, between brothers and sisters in Christ. And the horizontal fellowship is dependent upon the vertical fellowship. You really can't have true horizontal fellowship without true vertical fellowship. If we don't have true vertical fellowship, if we're not fellowshipping, in God, through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then basically when we come together, uh, what we have is more like a social club. And I don't think John is interested in building social clubs. That's not what he's after. He's interested in building and building up a church. So fellowship is extremely important. And then there is joy. I don't think I have to tell you how important joy is, right? I mean, everyone here wants that quality known as joy, right? I mean, we want intellectual, uh, psychological, emotional, and spiritual satisfaction. We, we want to be whole and have that sense that we are whole and that everything's okay. You know, I was thinking this week that, that joy for me is, is really that sense of, of being home. Now, I went home last week down to Alabama and visited my family and spent some time with them. And there's nothing like being home. I mean, I love Wisconsin. It's a great place, even in the winter. Forgive me for the lie I just told. I mean, I, I, I love being here, and I love being here with you. But there's nothing like being home with my family. And so joy is that same sort of thing. When, when you're... At home in the Lord, 
that's where you find joy. And joy is extremely important. At one point in the Old Testament, the writer tells us there, I think it's in Nehemiah, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. You want strength for serving the Lord? You want strength for doing the Lord's work? Then what you need is joy. So John is writing for the purpose of encouraging us in our fellowship with God and in our fellowship with one another and also for the purpose of joy. So with that in mind, I want to read the text with you today. So bear those things in mind. He's writing for fellowship and joy. Now let's read from verse 5 in chapter 1 down to verse 2 in chapter 2. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I don't know if you picked up on the connection between um, John's purpose for writing and this particular passage. But if you look again at verse 1 of chapter 2, you'll see it there. John gives actually a third purpose for writing in this verse. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, this particular purpose is actually a secondary purpose that should fit under the two primary purposes that we just talked about. I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. And here's how the two fit together. If we sin, or when we sin, or if we have difficulty with sin in our fellowship, then our fellowship is going to struggle, right? If we have sin issues and sin struggles, and we're given over to sin, then we're not going to have joy. So, it makes sense. Sin defeats the purposes that John has outlined in his introduction. Fellowship and joy. Sin kills fellowship. And it kills joy. So, John says, don't sin. Don't sin. That's his word in light of his purpose. Now, he's going to address sin in these verses that are, that are coming up. He's going to talk about sin. And he's going to say three things about potential towards sin that we can have. Now, one thing you need to know about sin, you probably already do, but in the book of Hebrews, it's about sin is deceitful. The writer there to his audience says, I don't want you to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. We can be duped. We can be blind in our sin. So it's important that we're taught something about sin. So there are three attitudes, three wrong attitudes in our passage towards sin. And I want to point them out to you. Uh, first of all, sin is acceptable. Look at verse 6 again. 
John says, if we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And I think the attitude being represented by this group of people, once again, is that sin is acceptable. There are plenty of people in our society, and you know some of these people. Not that I'm suggesting that you would judge them and draw some conclusion on their eternal destiny, but yet you know these people. Their lives are contradictory. With their mouths, they confess Jesus Christ. They say they're a follower of Jesus Christ, but yet with their lives, there's no complimentary follow-up to their confession. You know those type of people, right? Athletes, celebrities, people on TV profess Jesus Christ, but yet their lives do not follow that profession. And I have to say that that when I see that, my heart breaks. It really does. Because I think, boy, what a platform God has given you to shine for Him, but yet you're doing just the opposite. You see, John says, do not be deceived about, about sin, okay? If you say you have fellowship with God, and yet you walk in darkness, then you lie and you don't practice The truth. The second attitude I see in this passage is down in verses 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And then again in verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, there are those who refuse to believe that the concept of sin applies to them. They explain it away in some way, or they outright deny that they've sinned. I think others think that, that they can get away with their sin. And so in that sense, um, they say they haven't sinned. They don't think God is really paying attention. And still others, I think, have too high a view of themselves. So, they don't think they sin because of, because of their own self-righteousness. Too high a view of themselves and too low a view of sin and of God, we could add. These people, though, John says, deceive themselves. Really, that's all they're deceiving, right, is themselves because everybody else knows they're sinners. They deceive themselves Verse 10, they make God to be a liar. His word is not in them. So, by denying God's word, this group views sin as inapplicable. And then here's the third group in verse 9. Sin is excusable. Now, verse 9 is not a denunciation. It's a very positive verse, and we'll talk more about it later. But I think some people can can twist verse 9 and distort it To serve their own particular purpose. You know, Satan, when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he actually distorted God's word when he represented God's word to Jesus. So this can happen with any verse in the Bible. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, there are those who believe that because God is gracious, then sin is, is excusable. They can do whatever they want, right? Doesn't matter. 
God's going to forgive me anyway. They feel they have a license to sin. A get out of jail free card. But believing in grace in this sort of way actually is to treat God's grace contemptuously. It's to trample upon the grace of God. Because God's grace never called us out of sin to excuse the sin in our lives. And to make excuses for the sin in our lives. And then to rely on Him to bail us out every time we sin so foolishly. These are three attitudes that John's addressing. And he wants his he wants his listeners, he wants his readers, his church, he wants them to understand how sin works. He wants them to understand the deceptiveness of sin and and how they can be blind to these attitudes. Why? Well, because sin is a problem. Sin destroys fellowship and sin destroys joy. In essence, sin sin destroys the church. So, my little children, he says, be aware of of what sin can do. Now, here are the attitudes, but then John offers a corrective for the attitudes. I want you to notice the corrective in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, this is the message that we have heard and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the corrective. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In this context, to say that God is light is to say that God is morally perfect. He's completely and totally perfect. Perfect. There is not one moral flaw in God. There's not one blemish or one stain on His character. All of His ways are excellent. All of His judgments are true. He is sinless. In Him is no darkness at all. Additionally, there is no one like God. No one can compare to Him. There is all of creation and then there's God. There's sinful humanity, and there's God, holy. There's us, darkness. And then there's God, light. And if we're going to have the right perspective towards sin, if we're going to see sin correctly, then we need to see sin in the light of God. In the light of who he is, we must do as John says in verse 7, walk in the light as he is in the light. If we ever intend to get to the point where we view sin as serious, where we view sin as deadly, and sin is something that needs to be dealt with in each of our lives, we must view God or view sin as God does. Let me give you an example of the distance between our view of sin and God's view of sin. I want you to go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis, first few chapters. One sin by Adam and Eve plunged our whole world into darkness. 
one sin, and not that bad of a sin if you're scaling them. I mean, all they did was eat some fruit on the surface. Don't you think God overreacted? Now, you know the correct answer, right? You know he didn't overreact. You, you know that's the right answer. But yet, in our human nature, that's what we want to conclude. I mean, if you're being honest, maybe you would admit, yeah, I do think that. Really, God? I mean, was it that bad? I mean, the whole world, for generations to come, plunged into sin and darkness, everybody dying because of that one sin? You ever think that? Did God overreact? I don't think he did. And, and, you know, I think thinking that way kind of gets us to the place we need to be in understanding sin. So in other words, if God did react in that manner, and if God is, as Abraham said in chapter 19 of Genesis, the just judge of the entire world. I mean, he is, he is perfect and he is true in all of his judgments. If that is true, and it is, then God couldn't have overreacted, Right? He would not be a true judge if he had overreacted. The crime fits the punishment. So one sin must be incredibly, incredibly bad. I mean, I don't even have the the vocabulary to describe how bad just one sin is. Just one sin. One rebellious act against the creator of the universe. You see, the, the proper takeaway then from this observation is, well, how holy is His holiness then? I mean, we say it all the time. It rolls off our lips. We sing it in worship songs. God, You are holy. But we don't really have but just an inkling of an understanding of what it means to say that God is holy. How holy is His holiness if one sin provoked that response? How majestic is His majesty? How bright is His light? There are three men in the Bible that that were exposed to a megadose of God's holiness. Right? I mean... For whatever reason, maybe for us here today because we're talking about it and it has value for us to reflect. God just kind of pulled back the curtains and let these three men see something of His unveiled nature, you know. The first was Isaiah. You've heard about Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6 in the Old Testament. You can read his story. But he goes into the temple and he has this vision of God. He was there praying. And he sees the Lord high and exalted. And it is so overwhelming for Isaiah. 
that he cries out, Woe is me, for I'm a sinful man, and I live in the midst of a sinful people. In other words, we're all sinners. Isaiah came unglued. Isaiah was a prophet. He knew what the word woe meant. Woe was a denunciation. It was, it was the doom of God being called down upon someone. And Isaiah had spent his life pronouncing woes on the neighboring ungodly countries because of, because of their evil ways. But here, Isaiah views himself as no better than those neighboring peoples. And he says, woe upon me. Why? Because he saw God. <laughs> he just had a glimpse of God. Then there's Job. Job suffered like no one else, and so he had all of these questions and all of these considerations, and then his friends come over, and they talk about it for days, trying to come up with a solution. And finally, God speaks to Job. He speaks to Job for four chapters. And when Job gets a chance to respond, here's what he says, Behold, I am of small account. That is, I am nothing. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I will shut up now. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I will not say another word, God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I despise myself. Then we come to the New Testament. And this very author of the book that we're looking at, he has a vision one day. God gives him a vision and says, here, I want you to write this vision down. We call it the book of Revelation. But here's, here's how it all started. I mean, John got these words from Jesus himself. Here's how it all started. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs were, were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. <laughs> and John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. <laughs> We don't have a clue, right? I mean, we do because we just saw what these three guys went through. Let me remind you, too, that these three guys were not atheists. These three guys were godly men. Godly men. They'd go toe-to-toe with anybody here today, if not far exceed us. 
Isaiah was a prophet. Job was a godly man. He was a righteous man. And John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. These men, in their godliness, received visions of the holiness of God. And every one of them came away believing they were nothing. They they were absolutely crushed at what they saw. God is light. God is light. God is holy. He's morally perfect. In Him, there is no darkness at all. At all. I don't think in their wildest imaginations these these men perceived sin to be as serious as it actually is until they saw God. Until they caught a glimpse of His holiness. And I think the same is true for us. Our attitude towards sin will always be less than what it should be until we catch a glimpse of the holiness of God. Until we do as John is inviting us to do. Walk in the light. Come on. Walk in the light. Don't be deceived by sin. Come into the light and let this holy God shine on you too. And you say, wait a minute. You just told me about three people that were almost killed. I want to say to you, it's okay, he's not going to kill you. But then I think, well, wait a minute, he is going to kill you. You see what I'm saying? I mean, God's going to kill you, right? He, in other words, the you that's you, that's going to die. And you're going to change, you're going to be transformed, you're going to become something new. And that's a good thing. So it's painful. I will admit, it is painful. It is painful to be in God's presence, and to have something ugly revealed to you about yourself. Have you ever experienced that? If you haven't, you should be experiencing that. Because there is plenty ugly about you and about me. We are sinners. We are sinners. And John says, listen, all of us, come into the light. Come into the light. Let God shine upon you. And He will transform you. Now the great thing, the great thing about this is, you know, again, it's, it's painful. I think a lot of people want to avoid God for this reason. They don't want to come to grips with themselves. Because it's painful to do that. We like to think much better of ourselves or much more highly of ourselves than we ought. So we want to keep our distance. You remember the children of Israel when God came down on the mountain? They're like, whoa, Moses, you go talk to him. But God just keeps coming, right? And in the New Testament, he has come to us in Jesus Christ. He's come to us. He's come very near in Jesus Christ. But here's the great thing. Here's the awesome thing, and it's in the text, and I'm going to show it to you. We have great and wonderful promises so that we might deal 
with the sin that is exposed in the light of God's holiness. It's amazing. How about um, verse 7? Once again in chapter 1. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, what's going to happen? We're going to have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Doesn't that make you happy? His blood cleanses us from all sin. I think the word there, cleanses, has more to do than just that first time, you know, salvation. I think it's, it's an ongoing effect of the blood of Jesus. We we're saved once, we're cleansed once, and we don't need to be saved again if you're truly saved, you know. But you do need to be cleansed. That's what Peter found out when he talked to Jesus. You do need to be cleansed. And so we learn in Hebrews that the blood of Jesus cleanses our consciences from evil works, from bad works, so that we might serve the living God. It's talking about sanctification. If we come into the light, that's what we get. How about verse 9? Back to verse 9 earlier. I talked about a twisting of that verse earlier. But what an awesome verse it is. If you confess your sins, if you own and acknowledge your sins, if you don't deny your sins, if you come into the light and you see your sinfulness and you confess those sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And everybody said, isn't that awesome? What, what a verse. What a rock. Have you ever stood on that verse in prayer? Have you? I pray that you have. I tell you what. I can't tell you how many times I've been in prayer and I've been praying. And, and I start thinking about my sin. My sin is being revealed to me as I'm reflecting before the Lord. Maybe I'm reading the Word as well and, and things are being brought to light. And I, and I, I in that moment, feel the guilt of, of my sin. And because sin causes death, I start having these death-like symptoms. You know, like, oh no, I'm going to die. It's over. I've sinned. And, and then to kind of go through that for a little period of time and then to have this whisper in my ear first john 1 9 and to go wait a minute first john 1 9 to the rescue if i confess my sins he is faithful and he is just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness and that's that Woohoo! i mean it's over Right? God said it. He's faithful and he's just. And if this verse ain't true, then he's a liar. And I know he's not a liar. And I go on my way rejoicing. Just the other day. You know, he forgives us, right? Just the other day. Sometimes for me, I don't know about for you, but I mean, the, the dump truck gets backed up and it gets unloaded. And then, you know, sometimes I just start recounting all of my sins. It seems, you know, from the time I was a wee little lad down in South Alabama growing up. And I'm thinking about all these sins. And, and it's like, you know, before long, you know, I'm struggling to stand under the load of these sins. And the Lord, you know what he, he said to me the other day while I was praying? He said, I've removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. 
I've forgiven you. They're cast into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. I've blotted them out. What sins are you talking about? If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us. That's what forgiveness means, that he chooses not to hold our sins against us anymore. You don't know why he can do that? At least to another word in our text, down in verse 2 of chapter 2, he is the propitiation of, of our sins, I believe it says, for our sins. Not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, Dave defined this word a few weeks ago. But let me just refresh your memory. Propitiation means this. You know, I love all these words. You know, I, I, I love the specificity of, of Scripture and the words so that, you know, every angle is covered, right? Brought to light. It has to do with God's anger, God's wrath. Sin makes God angry. And him being the judge of all the earth, he has to punish sin. And propitiation means that Jesus stepped in and took our place. And he became the recipient of all the wrath of God. All the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus. Your wrath, your wrath, your wrath, your wrath, my wrath. Every bit of it is poured out on Jesus. And you know what the end result is? God is no longer angry with us. In Christ, if we are in Christ, God is no longer angry with us. Isn't that amazing? How many of you walk around with a sense of God's disapproval hanging over your head? A dark cloud. That if you try to envision the face of God, there's a frown on his face. And he's shaking his head like this. God is no longer angry with us. Doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us. As his children, though. And there's another word in this text. These are all rocks, right? Like, these are rocks. When you come into the light of God and you're seeing your sin and you're being like, oh, no. Why am I doing this? Why am I getting close to God and, and, and seeing all this about myself? And then God starts healing you. You know, he, he wounds you because it's necessary. But then he begins to heal you by giving you these rocks, these healing rocks, you know, these verses. You stand on this a while. Now stand on this one a while. And here's another one. In verse 1 of chapter 2, if anyone does sin, the latter part of that verse, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Would you love that word, advocate? You know what it means? You have a defense attorney. A defense attorney. So you have to picture a courtroom. Okay, and there you are, you're on trial. You're being tried for your crimes, for your sins. God is the judge. Satan, or one of his minions, is the prosecuting attorney. They're bringing charges against you. But your attorney is Jesus. Your defense attorney is Jesus. And the charges are brought, and Jesus steps in and says, Hold on, hold on. There's a law against this. It's called double jeopardy. You can't be tried twice for the same crime. I've already been tried for him. 
The penalty's already been paid. He can't be tried again. And you're free. You know where this comes into play? I don't know if you've ever been praying or, you know, ever been going about your business and, and thinking and then uh, you, you start getting these, these accusations that you're hearing, you know, these accusatory, insulting remarks, you know, about your worth as a child of God. You're like, where, where is this coming from? Probably the enemy. All these accusations. You know, the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. And then you begin to think about what Jesus Christ has done for you. You think about his defense offered on your behalf. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? He's interceding for us before the Father. See, these are all the things that God has given us in order to help us heal in light of the sin that He's revealing to us in the light of His light. You see, ultimately... Ultimately, God cares about this group of people right here. He cares about each of you individually, but he cares about us corporately. Okay? I mean, it is very important to God what happens with this corporate group. And when God says to John, write about fellowship and joy, I mean, it's very important, right? Fellowship and joy. And John starts right off the bat talking about sin. He says God is light. You know, he doesn't say God is love until chapter 4. He starts with God is light. Because that's the answer. You know, seeing God in the light of who he is is the answer. So here's what I want to challenge you with today as as we close. I want to ask you to draw near to God. Just, just just, get closer to God. Maybe, maybe you're making no effort whatsoever. Maybe your efforts are lackadaisical. Maybe you're just kind of caught up in life and just cruising right along and, you know, you're being carried along in this, in this river and, and you've got no control over things. Stop. Stop. There is nothing more important than your relationship with God. Stop. Draw near to God. And the promise is, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And let God shine His light into your heart. Open up the Word. Just read the words that God show yourself to me. Show myself to me. And begin, begin to work through your sin issues with God at your side, knowing that Jesus Christ has died for that sin. And while it might feel like death, there is hope. And there's healing. And there's a much better life on the other side. That's what I want to challenge you to do today. In light of this text. In light of God's Word. 
Would you bow your heads now, please? Father, I thank you for your word today. I I love your word. I know your people here do as well. Um, Thank you for what you've taught us, what you've shown us. And I pray that you would bring it to pass in us that we would all go forth and set our hearts on diligently seeking you so that we might find you, so that we might be changed. You know, Paul, your servant, talks about this in in, uh, his letter to the Corinthians where he says that we're all transformed. Uh, As as we see the face of Jesus, we're transformed from from one place to the next. And uh, that's how we grow. We grow by seeing you in your light and seeing our sin and putting our sin aside and confessing it to you and praying, um, asking you to forgive us. And then we move from there and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bring all this to pass so that we might truly be your people, so that we might have that deep fellowship that you talk about, so that we might have the joy that you talk about, that you came to give, and not just joy, but complete joy. Complete joy. Father, I pray this blessing on everyone here today. In Christ's name, amen.